In those days, the severe famine that Joseph had foreseen in Pharaoh's dream struck the land. As starvation set in across the country, Joseph set up food distribution using grain that had been stored for up to seven years. In Canaan, Joseph's family was starving, and so Jacob sent his sons, Joseph's brothers, up to Egypt in the hope of buying food. When the brothers arrived in Egypt, they were brought before Joseph, who recognised them straight away, although they didn't recognise him. His heart was filled with compassion for them, so he gave them food. Although he had forgiven them for selling him into slavery, he wisely began to test out if he should trust them enough to seek reconciliation. Over the next two years, he tested their integrity, their honesty, and their willingness to repent of all the harm they had tried to do to him. Many times during those years, Joseph was deeply moved when he met his brothers. Having tested his brothers, Joseph decided it was time to reveal his identity to them, and so he banished all of his servants out of the room, stood before his brothers, and broke down weeping, before saying to them, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realise that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. It was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen, where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and everything you own. I'll take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. The brothers rushed home and brought their father and all of his family and flocks to Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and travelled to Goshen to meet his father Jacob. When Joseph arrived, he embraced his father and wept, holding him for a long time. Finally, Jacob said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen your face again and know you are still alive. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for that warm welcome. Uh, Very much appreciated. Uh, Those of you who have been following through this series will know that we are in part seven of our series, Living the Dream. And uh, we started the series with uh, the character, central character of the story, a young man the name of Joseph. He was 17 years old when his uh, jealous brothers uh, sold him into slavery uh, to get rid of him, basically. Uh, And here we are, this part of the story that we're picking up today in Genesis uh, chapters 42 through 45, uh, we, we are moved forward. We have fast-forwarded 15 years, and we, those of you who have been following the story will know there's been lots of ups and downs in the story. Joseph didn't die, but he's ended up, here we are 15 years later, he's ended up in one of the most powerful jobs in the land of Egypt. He is like prime minister, uh, second only to Pharaoh, living in the palace, and everything is wonderful from his point of view on the face of it. Uh, the scene, though, that's set up for us in this passage is that we are two years, as you just heard a moment or two ago, we are two years into uh, a seven-year global famine. Uh, across the whole of the known world, as it was known at that time, uh, there's been a famine. 
Uh, the famine is so severe that up in Hebron in Palestine, uh, Joseph's father uh, commissions his 10 or 10 of Joseph's brothers, the youngest brother Benjamin is to stay behind, but the 10 of the older brothers, as it were, are to travel the 200 miles from Hebron down to Egypt in order to get some food because the whole of the family, the whole of the family tree from granddad all the way through to all the grandsons are literally starving to death. They've run out of food and the only thing they can do is to send uh, the brothers to go and get some food. Now, unknown to the brothers and unknown to the father is that when they arrive in Egypt, the the person who's in, we, we get the insight, they don't know this, but the person who's in charge of distributing the food and selling it to those who need it at this time is none other than their brother, Joseph. When they come in with their money ready to buy grain, Joseph recognizes them immediately, but they don't recognize him, probably because he was speaking Egyptian, he's probably dressed up like Pharaoh's prime minister. They don't recognize him, uh, and so he decides to just have this interaction with them, and that's what we, we see there. Uh, And the story comes to its pinnacle. In fact, I think the whole story of Joseph comes to its pinnacle in a moment, two years later from this moment, when Joseph reveals his identity, we heard it read to us, reveals his identity to his brothers by saying, brothers, come close. It's a Hebrew word there, which is a very intimate word. Come close. Come. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried about what you've done before. God has brought us to this moment. It's a beautiful moment. And all through those two years, if you needed uh, biblical evidence that grown men do cry, you'll see it in the life of Joseph. Three or four times that the Scriptures tell us that he broke down crying and weeping because he stood in front of his brothers. They don't know who he is, and he's kind of testing them out. He says he has to go into another room and to uh, kind of calm himself down, get, get a grip, as it were, before he can come and speak to them. I'll come back to that pinnacle moment just in a moment or two. But there are one or two universal truths that we can take into this. Here is my number one universal truth. When we're talking about the life of Joseph, everybody loves the idea of having a big dream, don't you? When we, we covered that week, everybody's going, yeah, come on, I'll have a dream. Yeah, not any dream will do. I'll have a big God's dream for me. We're all queuing up for writing down what our dream is. When we come to this part of the story, and I say to you, what I offer to you today is not a big dream per se, but I offer you the opportunity to start forgiving and be reconciling to those who have really hurt you. Exactly. It's not quite so energizing, is it? It's a bit more frightening. It's a bit more concerning. But let me just console your hearts that if Joseph in his situation can find the energy, and we'll come back to this in a moment or two, can find the motivation, can find the means of forgiving his brothers, there's hope for us all. Yep. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. We'll come back to that in, in a moment or two. The other universal, second universal truth that's here is that it doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter what position you've got in life because Joseph had it all. He was a, one of the richest people in the whole of Egypt. Uh, he was in the highest position. He lived in a palace. And yet the story tells us that the, the thing which broke his heart most was the being not reconciled, irreconciled with his brothers and his father. Isn't that true for all of us? No matter what position we're in, who we are, I just know I've been praying for you. 
for the last three or four weeks since I've been preparing this message, and I just know, I've been a pastor long enough to know that as soon as I start talking about relationships and the need for forgiveness, most of us at some time will have a situation or a relationship that we need to kind of figure out a little bit, and so this is very, very relevant to us. Now, so how are we to put this story into our lives? Well, here's a starter for 10. How about trying this? When you look at the story of Joseph, his brothers, and his father, I wonder if we could see ourselves identifying with any of them. If you were to put yourself in the story, if I was inviting you now, and I am, to put yourself into that story, maybe some of you would say, well, actually, I look at the story, and I'm like Joseph. Uh, I didn't really do anything wrong, but wrong has been done to me. And there are people around that I need to forgive for what they did to me. I'm actually, I mean, I don't like the word, but you'll get the idea. I'm the, the victim of something that someone has said or didn't say, something that someone did or didn't do. I am, I'm like Joseph. Maybe that's you. Others here, you'll be able to identify with the father, Joseph's father, because uh, although he did a few kind of silly things at the beginning, you know, to, that kind of riled the other brothers and got them all jealous and so on, he didn't deserve, did he, that his uh, precious uh, son Joseph uh, would be taken from him. He didn't deserve, did he, to be told a lie that he had been eaten by animals and that this coat of many colors that's covered in blood is evidence of that. He didn't deserve, did he, to live all these years, 15 years at least, thinking that his son was dead, not knowing that he was still alive somewhere in Egypt. He didn't deserve to be caught up in the crossfire between Joseph and the brothers. Maybe that, that's you. Maybe you uh, as a child or a young person, for example, you were, uh, you were witness to your parents' relational breakdown. And actually, you can say, well, yeah, I'm like the dad. I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm the victim of this. I, I, I can identify with the pain that's going on there. Or maybe it's a work situation. You thought things were going sweetly and smoothly, and then it all breaks down, and you actually, you, you're, something is laid on you that wasn't your fault. If that's you, you can identify there. And what about the brothers? There may be people here, I'm sure there will be people here who will identify with the brothers. The brothers actually did do something wrong. Whether they did it intentionally or whether you did it intentionally or not intentionally, whether it was something you wish you'd never said or wish you did say, something you wish you'd never done or something that you wish you did do, actually, you can identify with the brothers and mostly because you've got a sense of a weight that you've been carrying. Often for people, it's like a sense of guilt you know, I did something wrong or I didn't do something right. I've caused this mess and I don't really know quite how to figure it out. Well, what I want to say to you is that wherever you put yourself in that story, or if you're fortunate enough, you're one of the fortunate few that right now all your relationships are hunky-dory and I don't have to think about any of this. Let me just get, I'm afraid I'm going to have to break that little bubble. Okay, we are fallen people in a fallen world. I'm fallen you're fallen. Yes, we've got Jesus and His power by His Holy Spirit living in us, absolutely. But if we think that we're going to go through the rest of our life without a relational kind of bump, it's not going to happen. What's going to happen is that someday you'll need to take these lessons, whether you can put yourself in the story now or whether it's going to be in the future. I would want to encourage you to get the truths out of this story, the application, and be ready for the things that are coming in the future. Is that okay? Yeah, it went very, very, very quiet there. Okay, I don't hear any whooping and wailing. You know, people, I want that. Give me that. Okay, I understand that totally. And I'll tell you why I understand that totally. Because when I was, some of you know this, but let me just refresh. 
Uh, when I was about 14, I was part of a family breakdown. My parents separated. Um, the rights and wrongs of that don't matter right now. But my parents separated. I had two sisters, and my two sisters, about a year later, went to live with my mother. And for a period then of, uh, I think, when I knocked my mother's door, it was two days after my 30th birthday. That was the next time I saw my mother after, after all this kind of breakdown thing. And again, I'm not apportioning blame one way or another. That, you know, you just, you just can't. Uh, you can't do that. But uh, what happened over a long period of time is I realized that I'd been caught up in the pain of, of this. You know, things were going well in my life. I, I went, I got a job and enjoyed my work. It was a great job. And then I went to Bible college and uh, as well as all the kind of Bible stuff I learned, which was brilliant. I actually met my, met my wife there, which was the best thing that ever happened to me at Bible college, apart from getting out. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, no, she was the best thing that ever happened to me at Bible college, including getting out of Bible college. Uh, I, I'm not, I wasn't one for uh, that kind of residential thing. But anyhow, all those things were really going well. But what was going on inside of me actually was pain and hurt. I know that. I can look back now as a 53-year-old, and I, I know that there was a lot of pain and hurt there that took many, many, many years uh, to work through. And uh, even though I turned up, I literally turned up at my mother's door and knocked on her. She, uh, she nearly dropped on the spot when she opened the door. Um, but there was a very painful thing there, and I'll come back to it in a second or two. But we weren't reconciled there and then, much to my dismay. I fully expected my mother, this is what I expected, uh, I mean, we're in good terms now, we're chatting away and all that, I fully expected my mother to throw her arms around me and say, oh, I'm a long lost son. Um, she, she didn't do that because she was as confused as I was in that moment. So all, what, the reason I'm telling you all that is I'm not just coming to you from the study. Okay? I'm coming to you from experience and I'm coming to you having prayed for you and prayed for me. And I absolutely... I'm sure that right here in this auditorium or there in Cafe Church, you're absolute, God is absolutely want to speak to your heart about relationships, wherever you are on all that spectrum. Is that okay? Are we, are we kind of okay with that? So what I'm going to do then is I'm very quickly going to, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. I'm going to pick out four principles, four kind of ideas, which I feel very positive will help you, help me when we think about uh, broken relationships. And here is why. Because people, generally speaking, come from either one side or the other of a spectrum when it comes to broken relationships. Here is the spectrum. Like me, this is where I'm at. I've just told you a little bit of my story. I'm from the the side of the spectrum, which goes from here to over there, I'm from the side of the spectrum. If, if there's something to be said, let's get it said. Right? If there's something to be worked out, let's get it worked out. If there's something to be done, let me knock on their door and try and sort it out. Okay? It's like metaphorical boxing gloves. Okay? We're just going to go head at it. I do not recommend it. Okay? <laughs> Take it from me, it hurts. Don't go there. Okay? On the other side of the spectrum, though, uh, are those who respond to like relational dissonance by uh, putting effectively like a metaphorical blanket over their head. If it's dark enough for long enough and warm enough in here, it will all go away. Let me tell you, that doesn't happen. You know, I've been there and I've been here. But where God wants us to be is right in the middle. What God wants us to do is to realize that we do need to take some action and actually he's going to help us too. So, uh, let me talk about these four things. But because this is quite heavy duty, let me just tell you a little story about my last summer. One of the things that Heather and I, my wife Heather and I, have always tried to do every year since we've been married is to grow tomatoes. 
Right? We have not been successful at it. We have bought them bag things, whatever you call them. That, that's how, this is why we're unsuccessful. That whatever that bag thing is, what do you call it? A tub tomato bag, a grow bag, that's right, uh, and you put the tomato plant in it, you put it against the back wall because it needs a warm, sunny wall and all that palaver. Uh, actually, over 20 years, we, we, you know, it's just never worked. So we studied hard, or Heather did, she said, we're going to grow tomatoes this year. So for her birthday, I bought her a greenhouse. Recommendation number one, do not buy your wife a greenhouse for her birthday, even if she said she thinks she would like one. It didn't work. Anyway, uh, I got over that. She got over that. We've been reconcil reconciled. I, I put the greenhouse in the bottom of the garden. Just before we went on our summer holidays, uh, we put all the, we got good earth. We realized there's four components to growing tomatoes. There's good fertile earth, there is warmth, there is sunshine, and plenty of water. That's the four things that all have to be there together. So my part in all this, apart from building a greenhouse, was to put an automatic watering system in, which I did. It's connected to the tap three times a day. It gives the tomatoes a nice little drink, and that's fine. So we set it all up, and then we went on holiday for two weeks. Okay, so you've, oh, you've so little faith, haven't you? I can just tell you. <laughs> No, it's the exact opposite. When we come back, what we discovered was that we'd put five tomato plants in this little thing. They'd gone mental, right? The conditions were absolutely perfect. And it was like the glass of the greenhouse was bowed out with these tomato plants. Literally opened the greenhouse door and it was wall to wall growth. We had to cut a little hole in it with scissors to try get down even to where the tomatoes. It's absolutely true. So what this, what's all this got to do with this? What it's got to do with this is very, I'm just going to give you four points about reconciliation. It's not point one, then point two, then point three, then point four. It's like growing tomatoes. You need four conditions for healthy reconciliation. And these four have to be there. You can't say, I'll have three and not have the fourth. Or I'll take two and the two middle ones seem good and I won't bother about the other ones. You need all four of these going on in your life if you're going to get reconciliation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. Okay, so here is number one then. And I'll, I'll whisk through these four and then we'll see where, where we end up. Number one then, uh, reconciliation takes time. Reconciliation takes time. And I'll dip in and out of the story of Joseph. Now, in Joseph's story, we can see that the gap between the breakdown with his brothers and so on uh, and reconciliation was approximately 15 years. And even when he met with his brothers, he wasn't reconciled straight away. It took another two years before he was reconciled. So there's like the first 17 years of his life, there's all that chaos. They sold him into slavery. Then 17 years later comes reconciliation. Now, there's lots of evidence in the story of Joseph that he had forgiven his brothers long before this. In fact, he... Um, he, he names his sons, we'll come to that in a minute or two. He names his sons after this movement that, that had gone on in his heart. But here is the point, reconciliation takes time. I wish someone had told me that. Because what you need to, in reconciliation is to separate out two moments, the moment of forgiveness and the moment of reconciliation. For the first 12 years of my trying to be reconciled with my family, these two things were the same thing. I thought I'd forgiven them and they'd forgiven me, but reconciliation wasn't coming. So then that get me caught up in, well, did I forgive them properly or am I, am I still holding something back? Do I need more forgiveness? But what I've realized from the story of Joseph and other broader scripture is that these two things need to be separated out. You see, if you can separate out the moment from, of reconciliation from the moment of forgiveness, you actually give yourself the freedom to be able to forgive someone and work towards steps towards reconciliation. Is that 
you know, so th- there is a separation. I wish someone had told me that. It would saved me a, a lot of agony. It's actually in the Bible that we should do just such a thing. Jesus himself says this. When you are praying, just like we are now, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. And then the Bible unfolds a process of reconciliation. So first priority is forgiveness. Now, whether you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, the brother's shoes, the father's shoes, or you're thinking about someone else, here is the first step. We have to move towards a position of forgiveness. Unforgiveness is bad for your health. It's bad for your spiritual life. It's bad for your relationships. We must move towards a moment of forgiveness. And I think it's helped by thinking about reconciliation as a completely different thing first forgiveness, and then move towards reconciliation. And that's where the time comes in. It takes time. Now, by God's blessing, forgiveness and reconciliation might be quite close together, but my experience is it's 20-odd, in my case, 20-odd years between the moment of forgiveness and the moment of reconciliation. And for others, you can identify with that same thing. Now, we know that Joseph had forgiven his brothers because, as I mentioned earlier, he named his two sons after what was going on in his heart. So, his firstborn son was called Manasseh, uh, and, that, and he called him that because it, it's beca- it means it's because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. So, that's cool. The second son he named Ephraim because the name means this. It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So, what can we deduce from that? These are words, these are names for his two sons that have come from a a heart that's forgiven but is not yet reconciled. You see that? So, we can forgive and then move towards the point of reconciliation, and we need time between the two things. There's a wonderful illustration on this in the name of a person called Gordon Wilson. Some of you older folks here will, will remember this guy, because in 1987, on Remembrance Day, in the town of Enniskillen in Northern Ireland, uh, he and his family uh, were attending the Remembrance Parade, and a bomb went off that had been planted, subsequently discovered, it had been planted by the IRA. In that bombing, he and his wife were very badly injured. His daughter, who was a nurse, was killed outright. That was a terrible, terrible uh, thing that went on. Now, here is the separation of forgiveness and reconciliation. Within two hours, Gordon Wilson became a world-famous man because he was on TV, and the very first thing he said was, I have no idea why these people would do this, but I forgive them from the depth of my heart for killing my daughter. That was within two hours of this event. Ten years later, he's involved in discussions with Sinn Féin, uh, the political wing of the IRA, and eventually he gets, ten years later, an apology from them for them having killed his daughter. So, what an example. It's It's a massive big story, obviously, but the microcosm is in our lives too. We can have forgiveness, let's offer it and receive it, and then work towards this moment of reconciliation. It takes time. Secondly, reconciliation takes truth. It takes truth. Bridges of reconciliation between one person and another are built on the foundations of truth. Misunderstandings or downright lies just won't work. 
So I'll need to leave you to read the whole of the story of uh, Joseph yourself. It's over three chapters. If you've got Dave's book, Living the Dream, you can read in there. He covers this. We'll be talking about it in life groups this week. I just have to, I haven't got time to go through it all. It's quite complex, all the kind of tests that Joseph does with his brothers. I have to cut to the chase, and here is the cutting right to the chase. In order to really get a restored relationship with his brothers, before he could put himself out there and trust them again, he had to hear some truth from them. I don't know if you've ever been in court as a, uh, as a witness, but every witness in the court in this land and most of the world has to say one thing. They have to say, I will tell the, you know this, I'm going to have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, I was reading about this, I was thinking, that's a bit weird. Surely you should just say, I'm going to tell the truth. That should be enough, shouldn't it? I will tell the truth. But why is it I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Because we have to realize that truth is just not one little fact. It's a story, isn't it, that unfolds. And in this story of Joseph and his brothers and his father, not one of them had all the truth. The father didn't know the truth about what had happened to Joseph. The brothers didn't know that Joseph was right in front of them. Joseph didn't know what had happened to his brother Benjamin. So between them, they had the truth but none of the individuals had the, all the truth. So they had to go through a process. This is the process I'm talking about, that reconciliation needs truth. Now, I go back to my own example. Uh, I, I met with my sisters. I have two sisters I mentioned, uh, a couple of years younger than me. Uh, I'm the eldest of the three. And what we had found was that uh, when my parents separated, my mum moved away, and my sisters, they eventually went to, to live with them, that for, for no reason... Um, untruths started forming in my head and heart and in theirs about me and me about them and about our parents and all the rest of it. So we wanted to be reconciled. I mean, I wanted my sisters to, I'm getting emotional here, sorry. <laughs> I wanted my sisters to know my kids, right? I wanted them to be totally, I wanted them to be in my life, but there was this barrier between us. So what we ended up doing and I would have been helped if I'd known forgiveness and reconciliation are separate, but I didn't at the time. Anyway, what happened was I met up with my sisters over a period of three or four years. We, we met and we had coffee and we had a few meetings. We visited the old street where we used to live, walked around there together. And what we discovered was when we started telling our story, we began to realize that the, some of the stuff that we believed about ourselves and about each other just wasn't true. We had no idea where it had come from, but when the truth got out there, we were able to say, oh yeah, I understand now why that would happen, and forgiveness and reconciliation were able to follow along there. Now, when you look at the story of Joseph, he did a number of tests on his brother, uh, brothers. I'm, we are not saying if somebody's wronged you, you have to write three tests for them. That's, that's not what you've got to do. You know, he, he sorted them out. He gave them three tests. You can read about it. Uh, and they had to pass those three tests before he was reconciled with them. That's not what this is about. What this is about, the lesson for us, is that if we want to be reconciled with anyone, we want to get our heart right and their heart right, then we need to build bridges with truth. It, it, it'll unpack as you, as you read through it. Now, the, the final test that they go through is a test about the youngest brother, Benjamin. Benjamin, who stayed with his father whilst they're doing various bits and pieces. There comes a moment when Joseph has Benjamin in prison, and he says to the brothers, I want you to go away back, down, uh, back up rather to Hebron and, and to bring the family down. If you bring the family down, you can have Benjamin back. 
Now, that, you can read about the test, but the whole test, that test, was for them to figure out whether or not they could trust the brothers. So here's Joseph. He wants to break his heart. He, he's breaking his heart all the time. He wants to say to them, I want to be reconciled, but how can you trust them? The first test proves that they're telling the truth. The second test proves that they're honest. This third test proves this. There's a wonderful moment in the Scripture when uh, Joseph says to them, Basically, I mean, this is my rough translation. You can go away and leave your brother Benjamin. If you want him, come back. If you don't come back for him, then I'll know that you're just as bad as you used to be when you sold me into slavery. That's the translation. So, just at the point when the ten, uh, nine brothers are heading out, they're going away, and he thinks, well, what are they going to do about Benjamin? One of the brothers, by the name of Judah, interesting use of the brother here, because if you read the early story about Joseph being sold into slavery, who started the whole conversation? Judah. Judah said, let's get rid of him. Let's chuck him down a well. Let's get rid of this Joseph the dreamer. This same Judah steps up now, and I can't, I want to read it to you, what he actually says. This is what he says. He's speaking to Joseph, says this, my Lord, Joseph, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in this boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, he's bound before them, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord Joseph, I guarantee to my father, our father, that I would take care of the boy, Benjamin. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. Wow, Joseph must have been thinking, is this the same Judah that I heard 15 years ago? We know that it is. And Joseph is so overcome by this moment of honesty from Judah and from the other brothers who are all with him. They're saying, put us in jail and let him go because our father will die. That, that's the final moment for Joseph. This is the pinnacle of the story. He says to all the servants, out of here, get out. Only his brothers are there. All the doors are locked and barred. Joseph breaks down. The Bible says that he was crying so loudly they could hear him streets away. People outside the palace are thinking, what is going on in there? His heart is broken. And then he says to his brothers, come, come close. Because he can trust them now, because the truth has come out. So reconciliation takes time. Reconciliation takes truth. And the third thing, and this is the most profound subheading and a message you'll ever hear in your life, is this. Reconciliation takes two. That, that took me a long time to come up with that one, okay? It took me two minutes to think of it as a heading, but it took me nearly half of my life to figure out the truth of it. You see, the fact is that unless you've got nuclear weapons, you cannot force the other person that you're upset with to reconcile with you. So has anybody here got nuclear weapons in their garage? Whew. That was just that was a little test just to see how much I can trust you. Okay. Unless you've got that level of force, you cannot force anyone to come to reconcile with you. Just imagine it like this. Imagine at this point where I'm standing on the stage is like the moment, the point of reconciliation here. You've got one person over there and you've got one person over here. Each of them individually has to make a journey towards the point of reconciliation. When both arrive at the point of reconciliation, obviously they can reconcile together. What took me so long to learn was I need to focus on my part because I cannot make this other person do anything. 
They ha they're responsible for their side, and I'm responsible for mine. It took a long time for me to figure that out, and I want to save you the agony of doing that. In fact, again, the Bible is very clear about this, that we shouldn't be passive. You don't sit here and say, well, they're not doing their part, so forget it. Not at all. That we have to be active in our forgiveness towards other people. Let me just read to you from Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The focus is absolutely on our part in this reconciliation. Now, there's two qualifiers in that lovely little scripture, and the first is this. If it is possible, there are some people that it is not possible to be reconciled with. Now, let me just get that. You, can, you have to forgive everybody. Everyone can be forgiven, but not everyone will be reconciled. So, for example, in the story of Joseph, we don't hear about him being reconciled to Potiphar's wife and having a big, big cuddle and big, oh, I love you, you're lovely. You know, I know you tried to harm me, but I love you. No, no. no. It, wisdom tells you, forgive her and keep well away. That's true, isn't it? Now, there may be examples in your life or in the lives of those around us. Someone abused you someone hurt you, someone just went over the top, and you're thinking, I can never be reconciled with them. Well, wisdom is that maybe you shouldn't, but you'd have to think about forgiveness, because forgiveness is hurting you, not them. They're, I mean, frankly, they're not bothered. Forgiveness is in our court, isn't it? The forgiveness is good for us, but the reconciliation might or might not happen. There will be people that we are not to be reconciled with, but many we can. That's the first qualifier. And the second is, as far as it depends on you. In other words, you can't do a lot about what's going on in the other person, but you have to do everything that's in your power from your side of the equation to get towards a point of reconciliation. The one thing that you can do for the other side of the equation is you can pray. Can't you can pray for that person that they, they will get to a point where they want to talk to you or be reconciled and so on. But other than that, you have to focus that it takes two. And, you know, you can think about a, re a reconciliation that you might be thinking about now or a moment of uh, a relationship that's going all wrong at the moment. They're going through the same motions as you are, aren't they? They're thinking about time and truth and all that stuff. And they have to be allowed their time. They have to be allowed their truth. The stories have to become. So pray for the others involved, but do what you can in your part to be able to move towards reconciliation. And here now is number four. Okay, now, when I've been preparing this talk for about four or five weeks, and every time I've come to this point, um, my heart's gone out for you, right? Because I, I've been a pastor long enough to know that some of you are sitting here right now and you're thinking, okay, I get time, I get um, truth, um, what was my third one? I get two, I get that. But if you knew what had happened to me, you wouldn't even be daring to ask me to forgive that person. If you knew what happened to me, you wouldn't even be able to talk about this reconciliation thing because it's ridiculous. If you knew what had happened to me, you'd be cutting me a bit more slack instead of pushing me onto this forgiveness thing. I am so aware of that. But that's why I've got a fourth point and didn't just land on three practicals. And here is the fourth point, that reconciliation takes trust. Now, I'm not, I don't mean trust of the other person. That's covered in this truth thing and all the rest of it. But trust that God himself is on your side 
and that God Himself is working in your life and in the lives of others to come to the place where you can take the first step in forgiveness of that person. In fact, Romans says, here it is, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, when you look at the story of Joseph, I didn't just dream this up, right? This is out of the story of Joseph. When Joseph calls his brothers together and says, come close in that moment of reconciliation, this is what he says to them, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said to them, this is this is amazing. Every time I'm going to cry, because every time I've read this in the last five or six weeks, I've, I've cried about it. I am your brother, Joseph, the one you, you sold into Egypt. Now, that would have been frightening enough. They didn't know that until this point. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Hear that? There's trust there. God sent me ahead of you. That's verse 5. Verse 7 of the same chapter of Genesis says, but God sent me ahead. Verse 8 of the same chapter, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then years later, at his father's funeral, their father's funeral, uh, the father's died, they've gone through the funeral service, the boys are all panicked, are you going to take your revenge now? He says to them, you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And he was thinking about the famine that was going on. You see, he had faith to see that if what had happened in his life had destroyed him, they would be in a place where the whole family tree of his father, all his brothers, all their wives, all of their children, all of their livestock would have been dead at this moment they would have literally starved to death. But what he didn't know, but we do know, because we've got thousands of years to look back, was that God had bigger plans for the sons than they even knew. Because these 12 sons go on to be the 12 tribes of Israel, the father Israel, who had his name changed to Israel. And from one of those tribes would come one who would bring not just salvation from starvation, but salvation full stop for every man, every woman, every young person, every child who was ever born or ever will be born. His name is the Lion of Judah. Ah, right, that's where that comes from. Out of Judah's family tree will come a Savior. His name is Jesus. You see, if Joseph hadn't realized that God is up to something, God's plans would have been thwarted. Now, of course, I don't know what God's got planned for you, but I know that I've been listening long enough in these last five or six weeks to know that He's got big purposes and big dreams and big aspirations for you. And the, the biggest holdback of it all is our lack of faith towards this, our lack of trust of Him. God is sovereign. God is over all and in all. And the truth is, if you listen to my first three points, that's why I was careful to tell you the tomato story. Okay, if you'd listen to my first three points, I would forgive you absolutely 100% for saying, there is no way I can forgive them, no way I can be reconciled. And the truth is, you're absolutely right. Because unless you get to point four, which is, but God did something in me that I couldn't do myself. But God gave me the strength to forgive someone. But God gave me the energy to get up off of my kind of place of, 
you know, concern and think I can move forward in my life. Unless there's but God in our stories, we will not be able to move to a place of, a place of peace. It's just not possible. Okay. You can try it through any way you mean. I'm talking from my own experience as well as my experience as a pastor with many thousands of people over the years. Unless you invite God into the middle of it and you believe God is going to be true to His Word and will help you and strengthen you, you will not be able to forgive others. You see, it doesn't make sense, does it, that Joseph would say, brothers, come close. Let me hug you. Don't be worried about what went on because God's done something. It just doesn't make sense. Unless there's a but God in there, it doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't make sense that Moses is leading the people out. He comes to the Red Sea. It's blocked. It doesn't make sense where God has brought them to that point, except, but God split the sea and they go through. It doesn't make sense, does it, at all, for um, when you think of the walls of Jericho, we think Joshua is facing those walls, trying to do what God told them to do, but the walls are impenetrable, except, but God was there. It doesn't make any sense that David is literally facing a giant who's going to squash him. But for God in the middle of that, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense that Jesus Christ himself would come, live, be crucified, be buried in a tomb and left there to rot, except that there's a but God. But God raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and to life. This is what happens. Now, you put yourself in the story earlier, whether it was Joseph the father or the brothers. There's no way forward but for God. There's no way forward but for God. And so what we're going to do just in a moment or two is I'm just simply, I've been, I've, that's why I've been rushing through. I've been wanting to get to this moment for about six weeks. <laughs> I want to get to this moment because I believe that uh, someone's life is going to be changed right now, whether it be here or in Cafe Church or watching online. Someone's life is going to be changed right now because it's dawned on you as you've listened to me that you've had forgiveness and reconciliation mixed up. It's dawned on you that you've been trying to do it in your own strength, and but for God, you're not going to be successful, I can tell you now. But there's a moment, and that moment is right now.